I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts it's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. My reactions are slow. I feel like I'm underwater. Is this happening? I keep looking around, expecting to wake up. That would be great to wake up and realize this whole thing is a dream. One big, long, bad dream. But that is not reality. This is life, real life in my face. I can't run and hide this time, not like I usually do. I look down and see my gun. Something in my head tells me to grab it. You might need it later on down the road. My trusty buddy when I feel weak. My strength when I feel scared. I grab it and run. I try to clear the guardrail and have to stumble over it one leg at a time. I only get about 20 feet when I sense a presence to my right. I turn and lift my arm to show them my gun. As my arm straightens, I feel fire, a line of heat pressing my body down. I drop to the ground in a fetal position. All I know is pain. It's a stream finding its way all over my body, then returning to my leg. I think I'm making noise, but I can't hear much. 
I thrash around, trying to escape the pain. I'm breathing hard, gasping for breath. I feel fire again and again. Where is it? Where am I hit? I know it is my lower body, but I can't bring my head level to see it. I roll onto my back and lift my head. There is blood, a fair amount of blood. Welcome to the Doherty Gang, a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. Episode 8, She's Obviously Not Dead. I'm Courtney Armstrong, a crime producer at KT Studios with Stephanie Lidecker. We've been working with producer Beth Greenwald on the Doherty Gang for months. Now, these three siblings have agreed to tell their story for the very first time, each from separate prisons. Lee Grace Doherty is at the Federal Correction Institute, Aliceville, in Alabama. Ryan Doherty is in the U.S. Penitentiary, Tucson, in Arizona. And Dylan Doherty is at the Federal Correction Institute in Bennettsville, South Carolina. This call is from a federal prison. So the car rolls. I try and get out. Can't get out of my door. Try and kick my window. Grace and Dylan are already out of the car. And then we're trying to get to the firearms that are in the rear, in the trunk, but the trunk's already been ripped open. It's already scattered a bunch of guns. One of the ammo boxes, I think, crunched one of the AKs. Like one of the AKs you see that's spread out on the interstate is bent like a taco. On August 10, 2011, the Doherty's reached the end of their adventure. After a shootout with police, a bank heist, and a cross-country chase, the law finally caught up with the trio on Colorado's I-25 highway. Reaching speeds of up to 140 miles per hour, their white Subaru flipped over and landed nose-first onto a highway guardrail. No one in the car was wearing a seatbelt. Ryan and Dylan explain what happened after the wreck. It literally threw me out of the vehicle when we rolled over. There was a gun that broke over, you know, the the stock of the gun broke, you know, because I was holding on to it. You know, I had no shoes on. I was barefoot, you know. That's, That's another thing. Whenever you get hit by a car, for some reason your shoes come flying off. Ryan wasn't thinking clearly. I'm going to try and use the car to keep it between me and the police, and uh, I'm going to try and shoot it out right there in the street because I really don't want to go to prison. I'd rather just die in the street than go to prison for the rest of my life. And I told him, I said, man, we need a car, bro. Go grab us a car. And I had my own you know, mental plans in my head, and, and I was waiting on the car, really. My first reaction after that type of rollover car accident is obviously to get out of the car because you're in such a haze, delirious state. You want to be on, put your feet on solid ground. And when I got out, something just told me just reach for my gun. It was between my ankles. And I pulled it up and I put it on, kind of held it to me, and then I stepped out of the vehicle. This all happened literally in seconds. Just I kind of rolled out of the vehicle and I was looking for Dylan and Ryan. Ryan just takes off as soon as he sees that we're okay. And, you know, I honestly, I thought there was a chance we could get away. Obviously, there was a lot of officers. And, but, you know, we had gotten away in Florida. Former Walsenburg Police Chief Jim Chamberlain was one of the first to confront the Doherty's. The driver got out and he started running. And I believe that was Ryan, I'm the youngest. So I got out of my patrol car and went around the back, jumped over the guardrail, went down the embankment, kind of running after him first. I yelled at him, stop police. He was in a full sprint. I could see both hands. It didn't look like he had a gun on him. So I was like, okay, well, I guess he's gone. So I turned back to look, and that's when I see Lee Grace coming down the embankment. And she has something in her hands, and at that time I couldn't really tell what it was. So I was just running, and I 
felt a presence or I heard a noise behind me and I just turned and I just, for some reason, something just told me, you know, get this cop away from you. I heard something. I don't remember exactly what he said. I'm sure it was stop, freeze, I'm going to shoot. And I just raised up my gun to him to get him away from me, to push him away, you know, to warn him. Dylan crawled around to the rear of the car. I was trying to climb into the back of the car, the trunk of the car. You know, I had no shoes, so I was trying to get a pair of shoes out of the trunk of the car. And once I heard them and I was, like, looking over the edge of the, you know, you know, the trunk was really high in the air, too. And I was wondering why my arm wasn't working. I kept trying to grab the trunk and, like, kind of, like, you know, hoist myself up where I could, you know, reach into the trunk. But my right arm was just wasn't really... There wasn't a lot of movement left in it. And I remember looking up that horn ramp, and I remember one of them had a 12-gauge. I don't know if you've ever looked at a 12-gauge barrel, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's about the size of your thumb, you know, in diameter. And the other ones had, I think one of them had a AR-15, and another one had a, uh, what's called a Mini-14, which is, a, you know, a Ruger, you know, kind of like assault rifle. And I was looking at those, those, those gun barrels, and they were coming, you know, down the thing, and then, they were screaming, get the fuck on the ground, we're gonna blow your brains out, get the fuck down. While a group of officers were focused on Dylan, Chief Chamberlain set his sights on Lee Grace. Had my gun out, um, started focusing on her. Um, she was doing something with her hands that looked like to me she was trying to get the action of a gun. Cocked back to start shooting, uh, yelled at her, police drop the gun, police drop the gun, police drop the gun. And the third time I said that, she looked up at me and stopped and spread her legs a little bit, started raising the gun that she had towards me, and I fired two rounds at her, hit her. She spun around, dropped the gun, and fell on the ground. So I started moving up on her because she still had the gun next to her. And all of a sudden, I'm shot. I'm just rolling around like an animal. This extreme pain, like hot fire poker, it's just through my leg, and I'm just screaming, and, you know, I can kind of sense my brother Dylan close to me, but I, I'm trying to figure out where he's at. The other brother was by the trunk. He kept looking in the trunk for something, so I told him, get out of the trunk, get on the ground, and he kind of looked at me over his shoulder. But I still had my gun pointed at his sister because she still had the gun next to her. Then I heard the shot. And I heard Lee Grace kind of like hollering and screaming. And, and I got right back up off the ground. Looked up at him again, told him to get on the ground. He turned, got down on his knees, looked over and saw where his sister was, stood up and started walking towards her. And that's when I transitioned my gun from her to him and told him to get on the ground, put his face on the pavement, or I'll shoot him too. But Dylan defied the police. Once I got up, I walked over to the other side of the on-ramp, you know, like to, from one uh, guardrail to the other. And I looked over down a hill and Lee Grace was there and she was kind of like rolling around on the ground and she was giving the officer a Navy salute of sorts. And she was like holding her butt. And I was like, well, well she's holding her butt and cussing at the guy. So she's obviously not dead. But the whole time they were screaming at me to get down. And I kind of like blocked out that, their verbal assault on me. And then I kind of like, I turned and, started looking back up the exit ramp at the officers and once again I started hearing their directives to get down on the ground and by this point they had closed the distance and they were maybe 
50 or 60 feet away. You know, they weren't real close, but they were close enough for me just to see them. And at that point, I was just like, man, I said, whoa, I, said, I really don't want to die here on the side of the road. I went down, you know, just dropped down to my knees and then kind of just sort of fell forward on the ground. And, you know, then they rushed up on me and that was about it. Chief Chamberlain ran over to Lee Grace. And then I asked her, are you hit? She said, yes. I asked her where? She said, in the hip. I was like, okay. So I'm looking. There's no gushing blood or anything. So I grab her, turn her over, handcuff her. And while I'm handcuffing her, I looked up and I saw like seven or eight uh, law enforcement officers up on top of the uh, overpass, or not the overpass, but the on-ramp. And they were all, you know, rifles and shotguns and tactical vests and stuff. And I'm like, well, I know over half those guys, so hopefully I'm not going to get shot. Ryan is gone. Ryan just takes off, like, running through this field. All I see is, like, dust coming up behind him with his boots. I think Dylan had injuries. He had a, 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 a fractured arm or fractured elbow. Maybe his arm was broken. I just see Ryan just take off just like a rocket, and he's just hauling ass in these work boots. And then he's gone. He just disappeared. He ran so fast across that field. And then all of a sudden, I'm on the ground, and I'm just screaming in pain. And that was just the situation. Everything happened so fast. It was like a dream. You know, you're moving, but you don't have precise control of your limbs. And I just remember looking up in the sky just being covered with dirt. Chief Chamberlain was on vacation that day, but when he heard the Doherty's were shooting at officers, he joined the pursuit. And with 14 years on the force, it was only the second time in the line of duty that he had fired a gun. So I went from thinking that I was just going to be back up to, oh, crap, there they all are. No vest. I was in a T-shirt and jeans. Nothing really that I identified me as a police officer. Meanwhile, Ryan fled across a four-lane highway. I remember seeing my sister get shot. Not like her whole body. I just happened to remember, like, from her lower body, I remember seeing, like, the front of her jeans, like a puff of material of the jeep. This call is from a federal prison. And all this is as I'm jumped over the side of the guardrail. And then there was a barbed wire fence like about eight or ten feet away from there. And I ran as fast as I could, but I knew I wasn't going to be able, you know, I don't have mad hops. I'm not going to be able to clear the top of this barbed wire fence. So I superman through it. Ryan had no idea that Dylan was in custody and he was determined to follow Dylan's plan. I try and run for a gas station that's across the street because they have some cars sitting there and like some of them look like they're still running because it's a little cold out and the exhaust is coming out and I don't see anybody in the car so I'm assuming that what they did is had their car on, pulled up to the gas station. It's a kind of podunk enough area to where the people are still trusty enough to leave their keys in, car running, go inside, grab a pack of smokes and a drink and come back and get back in their car and leave. So I'm going to go snatch someone's car because ours is fucked come back around the interstate exit, run over whoever I have to run over, and pick up my brother and sister. Ryan did not count on the bravery of some ordinary citizens who just happened to see him. Here's one of them, David Vucetich. He ran towards this little diner that was that's just right off the highway there by a truck stop. And I just happened to be coming down this other road. I had my mom in the truck with me, and we come down the road there, and there was this guy standing in the middle of the road right in front of me. And I noticed there was a bunch of people outside the diner. And I slowed way down, and this guy tried to open up the door when I drove by on my truck. 
Ryan continues. One of the cars that I'd seen, like a nice little Mercury Grand Marquis, a fucking, like, old lady goes and gets into her fucking car, and I'm like, shit, I can't, you know, I still have scruples. I'm like, fuck, I can't dump this lady out onto her face to get her car, you know what I'm saying? And I just kept running because I seen, like, a little Honda that was across the street parked right in front of the fucking uh, Domino's, and, you know, it looked like it had exhaust smoke blowing out of it. David Vucetich picks up the story. I told my mom, I said, well, I don't know what's going on, but I ain't going to have nothing to this. So I spun around there, and I noticed people were chasing him across the road then. I don't know what come over me. I just, you know, I saw a couple guys were chasing him, and I got, I jumped out of the truck and went after him. I thought the guy robbed the diner. It wasn't very long when I caught up to him, because when he spun around and he acted like he had a gun in his hand right there, I was already jumping over a fence going after him and that's when he tried to take that shortcut through that pond there i remember telling him don't go down in there and he went down through there and i told him you're a fucking idiot i remember that now we're running through that stuff because when he was going to go down in there i think he thought that that was just a pond and he was going to just get out there in the middle of the pond and not let anybody get to him and then he just sunk because he turned and got right out of it right away. And that's when he, he dove off down in the brush there. And, and then and that was when I was right on him. When he got, got out of that brush, I was right there on him. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst and the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Producer Beth Greenwald speaks with Ryan. How long were you running for, do you think? Four minutes, maybe. And did you have to go through any brush? Yeah, I actually fucking ran through like a, a bullshit, like a, a spillover type of pond for like fucking cows and shit. And like, just ran through some shit, bramble brush, fucking three, four foot tall, like sage brush, just like scrub brush shit. Here again is David Vucetic. One of the guys stayed behind because he was on the phone with the dispatcher. And the other guy, I don't know where he went at the time. I caught up with the guy there in the Arroyo there. And when I caught up to him, I told him you need to quit running. And he told me, well, if I don't, they're gonna kill me. They're gonna kill me. I'm like, nobody's gonna kill you. But you don't need, you know, I told him you didn't need to scare my mom in the truck like he did trying to jerk the door open and stuff. And the other guy was yelling at me, you just need to take him down, just take him down. You need to catch him. So I just brought him to the ground right there and he put up a little fight and I was able to hold him down on the ground there and he kind of just gave up then. He said, I'm done. I'm done running. Ryan was covered in sewage from the pond and he was exhausted. As I was running from the bushes from here to there, I kind of smoked out. You know, I'm not in a fantastic peak conditioning or whatever. I'm not a fucking runner at heart. and Like the adrenaline only pushes you so far and then your body maxes out. So I you know, like slowed to like a slow trot and some random Captain save type fucking weirdo people tried to like follow me and you know eventually I just gave up. I was like fuck it, you know, I don't, there's, not, there's nothing left to do. There's, there's nothing left here to do. Here again is David Vucetich. We escorted him up out of the Arroyo because none of the officers could find us. We were way, probably a couple miles away from, from the accident by then. And we walked him out back out to the road there so they could find us and and a state patrolman finally come down the road there and he saw us out there and we flagged him down and he came over and jumped on the guy the two civilians brought me to the side of the road with him and the fucking cops and paramedics were there and like the cops helped me pin down with some guns i remember him cuffing me and shit kneeling on my back on my neck and fucking driving my face into the dirt and then i remember the paramedics taking care of me i remember the paramedics being like super nice to me I, I'm a charming guy, no matter who it is that I'm around, I, I managed to charm them, and and they, they were really nice to me, and that meant a lot. That was cool. When did you realize that this guy had been on 
you know, multi-state chase at this point. I didn't know anything about him. See, I, I live out here on a ranch, and the news isn't the biggest thing to turn on in the house. At the time. I have no clue who they were. I didn't even know any of that was going on. I didn't even know there was a high-speed chase going on with them shooting at the officers. Me and my mom were going to run back into town and get gas for the, the four-wheeler. So she kind of just jumped in the truck with me, and we went back into town there, and it was just crazy there. I never, never seen so many news vehicles in my life down here in this small little town. And I pulled into the gas station, and there was news people, like, running up on me. And I'm like, well, gee, I don't know what this guy, you know, did and everything else. And they're all wanting to ask me questions and stuff. And that's when, I, like, I don't know if you want to call him, like, the head of the state patrol, and I think a CBI officer came up to me and wanted to talk to me. So they pulled me into the hotel there and they put me in a room there and then they explained to me what had been going on with these people and stuff. And I was just sitting there kind of like all in shock, like, wow, okay, <laughs> this just happened. Chief Jim Chamberlain picks up the story. The state troopers got over there and, and assisted as well to uh, get him handcuffed, even though he turned around a couple of times and made a motion like he had a gun, but they didn't see a gun, so... They took him into custody and troopers got him and then they uh, loaded him up into an ambulance and took him to the hospital. With Ryan in custody, the chase was finally over. Wanted to let you know we've got our crime scene unit en route to the 52 right now. We also have two detectives staging at the Texas on Colorado City. Okay. Former Colorado FBI agent Phil Niedringhaus was assigned to the Doherty case when they landed in Colorado. The FBI radio room told me that they said, you know, shots fired, pursuit happening, and then they updated me, said that vehicle crash and all three in custody. At that point, I got on the phone and I was talking to my boss, and he said, well, why don't you just keep going and go down there and see what you can do to help out and handle the media stuff down there. A fleet of flashing lights ended the family affair for the Doherty gang as they were taken into custody Wednesday in Pueblo, Colorado. We continuously said that these three fugitives wanted a battle with law enforcement. We would win that battle, and that's what happened today. Ryan, Dylan, and Lee Grace Doherty were all arrested and brought to a local hospital. Here's Dylan. They were dragging me out of there and put me on a stretcher board and took me to the hospital. And I don't really remember a lot of that. They kind of had my head duct taped to that. And I think I was handcuffed to it perhaps leg shackled too. I, I really don't remember exactly what all restraint they had put on me, although I was, you know, ratchet strapped into that. I think the paramedics, when they showed up, they probably took one look at the car and said, well, he really shouldn't be up walking around, you know? I remember a nurse leaned over me and, you know, because my mom was a nurse for 35 years. I was like, sweetie, you better cover your ears. And I think she knew what I was going to do, so she covered her ears and I, and I yelled for Lee Grace and Ryan. You know, I just told him I loved him, and then the cops were like, oh, shut up, you know, be quiet, you know, and, and, but I had said what I wanted to say, and they, they heard me, and then they yelled back. It was just really weird, the whole car accident, and, you know, the cops were all, they were there before the dust, you know, had even finished billowing to its height, you know what I mean? They were there as the car crashed, and, you know, some of the officers were like, man, we thought we were just coming up on some dead people in that car, and it's and he's like, can we get up there? You guys have already jumped out, you know, running in 17 different directions. And we were fortunate. I'm not for sure on 
you know, what the rest of my life is going to unfold to be. But, you know, I guess that we weren't meant to die in a car accident. Let's stop here for another quick break. We'll be back in a moment. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The sibling's mother, Barbara Bell, told us how she felt when she found out her children were captured. I was so sure that they... One of them probably had been shot, or maybe all of them, that I couldn't even walk. I crawled to the door in my 
filthy t-shirt <clears throat> and the person who ran the campground was very kind to us he came up and said they got them they're all alive and I was very relieved to hear that but of course there was so much misinformation bandied about I had no idea that all three of my children had been injured my one son had a broken arm my youngest had a sprained ankle and my daughter had been shot in the leg which barely missed her femoral artery and uh, I didn't find out all the details until later uh, it was extremely hard to find anything out from anybody because uh, our phone was compromised. And I think I'm going to stop there on that. I can't, devastation doesn't even describe it on how I felt. And I'm sure I just, I was baffled. I couldn't understand. Pascal County Sheriff Chris Nako was tracking the Doherty case from Florida. Beth spoke with him. So were you surprised that they were caught alive? I mean, they were still running and still trying to fight until that last moment. We all had a very strong understanding that this, you know, wasn't going to end peacefully, that we believed it was going to be an all-out shootout, which, you know, officers out in Colorado had to shoot, you know, again, they're shooting. Thank God the officers were okay, you know. And, you know, any loss of life is horrible. You know, nobody wants to see any loss of life out there. Detective Tim Harris, also from Pascal County, Florida, remembers when he got the call that the Doherty's were caught. When we finally got the information that the they had been apprehended that there was a pursuit situation, that there was a shootout. Uh, we had heard that Lee Grace had gotten shot. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the wheels began to go in motion. Myself and Detective Medley to fly out to Colorado because now we had all three of them in custody and our intentions were to do interviews with them to solidify or to gain evidence in our case here uh, in Zephyr Hills. So Detective Medley and I immediately got on a plane that afternoon and we arrived out in Denver late that night and we met with law enforcement counterparts from Pueblo County Sheriff's Office that we had reached out to make arrangements for us to meet up with them the next morning, which we did. And then we were able to set up the interviews from there. With the three siblings in custody, the media frenzy picked right back up. Three Pasco County siblings on the run for just over a week have been captured. The Doherty gang, Ryan, Lee Grace, and Dylan, were caught this morning near Pueblo, Colorado after a high-speed chase. The three were spotted at a shopping center in Colorado City this morning. Authorities say that led to a 20-mile-long chase at speeds of over 100 miles an hour. They finally crashed into a guardrail just south of the town of Walsenburg. Pasco County deputies are in Colorado. They're waiting to question the Doherty gang. The siblings, Ryan, Dylan, and Lee Grace Doherty, were arrested following a cross-country manhunt and chase that ended in Colorado. It wasn't quite over yet, at least not for the Doherty's. Their problems, in fact, were only beginning. The judge has ordered that each of the siblings be held on more than a million dollars bail, and that's just for the charges here. Remember, there are also those in Florida and Georgia. If they are convicted of even one of these crimes, they could spend the rest of their young lives in prison. Things were moving fast, and Ryan Doherty was starting to process the position he put his siblings in. They take us to the county jail. thought it might have been the last time that I'd seen my brother and sister, so I shouted out to him. I was like, man... I love you guys. And the fucking cops were like, shut up, don't shut up, shut up. I was like, man, go fuck yourself, bro. And I was like, man, I yelled that shit again. I was like, love you guys. 
three Pasco County siblings wanted in Florida and also in Georgia are being held on $1.3 million bond apiece in Colorado. They're each charged with attempted murder and assault on a police officer. Despite all the gunfire aimed at law enforcement, fortunately, no officers were hurt. As for the Doherty's, it remains unclear just which state will actually get to try them first. You know you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're in deep trouble. And you know that. You and your brothers both. I was in like a county jail, and I remember one of the jailers came and gave me like a piece of paper. He just came and gave it to me, didn't say anything, just, hey, this is for you, and then handed it to me and left. And all it said on it was my son's name and his weight and, you know, that he was born and whatnot. I mean, it's just crushing. More on that next time. If you're over 18 years old and want to see pictures of Lee Grace and Ryan Doherty or find their addresses to write them in prison, go to our Instagram at KT underscore studios. The Doherty Gang is executive produced by Stephanie Lidecker and me, Courtney Armstrong, along with Beth Greenwald, Sean McEwen, and Joseph Morgan. Editing and sound design is by Jeff Twa. Additional producing by Chris Graves and Jeff Shane. The Doherty Gang is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. 
Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.